Well, in John Bunyan's classical book, Pilgrim's Progress, and many of you have probably read that, we follow the path of the protagonist named Christian. He has left the city of destruction. He's lost his burden at Calvary and fought the battle already against Apollyon. Yet his journey is not over yet. Christian's final destination is the celestial city. There are still many dangers, toils, and snares that are upon his path. And at this point in the story, we see him come to a city called Vanity Fair. This is the place that was set up as sort of a trap. Uh, There was many things that would entice an individual when they came to Vanity Fair. It was to get them to veer off the straight and narrow. They sold all sorts of things there in Vanity Fair. They sold houses, lands, titles, countries, kingdoms, vices, lusts, pleasures, and delights. Whatever you could think of or even want or desire, it was there at Vanity Fair. At one point there in Vanity Fair, he's with his friend Faithful, and as the two pilgrims are wandering through the streets, a merchant cries out, what will ye buy? And their response is, we buy the truth. At this point, they already recognize the temptation to to deviate from their journey. So they decide to look and gaze up heavenwards, and they plug their ears so they can no longer hear the cries of the merchants who will distract them and tempt them. This enraged the community there at Vanity Fair, that these madmen would not indulge in the same pleasures that they were accustomed to. We likewise, as Christians, or as Christians, we are living currently in Vanity Fair. The world we live in here is very similar to the allegorical story of John Bunyan. It offers us everything we could ever imagine to feed our sinful nature. Our Christian walk through this life journey is filled with many dangers, distractions, temptations that would inhibit our journey to heaven. Sometimes we fall prey to our desires and our flesh. But in order for us to be more than conquerors, we must continue to wage war against the flesh's desires. So how do we crucify the flesh and fulfill the calling to be holy? I've titled this sermon, Sanctification, the Continuous Warfare Against the Flesh. So, Big word, sanctification. We were once in uh, Louisville, and my kids went to Sunday school. And uh, a lot of the professors from the seminary there taught even Sunday school. And my son, who was a lot younger then, we were asking him, you know, how was Sunday school? And he said, it was great, Dad, but they used really big words. Like, oh, really? Yeah. And he was like, yeah, they used words like sanctification, and I don't even know what that means. So it's important for us to define words. What is sanctification if we're going to talk about this important topic here? In both the Baptist Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it states this. 
Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The word sanctification is sometimes translated in our Bible as holiness. So if you see that there, we can sort of use that word interchangeably. This is the process in which the believers are, who are united to Christ are being made holy, set apart. This is an Old Testament concept, right? We have the, the Levitical tribe there being set apart. Uh, they're being consecrated. We, likewise, in the New Testament, we are being set apart. We're being consecrated and conformed to the image of Christ through his word and through his spirit that dwells in us. Sanctification is an ongoing process in the believer's life in which we, uh, as a confession states as well, abide the still some remnant of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's this tension that is going on inside of us today. We have the war of the flesh versus our spirit man inside of us. Now there's just a little bit of background here. There's much theological discussion when it comes to sanctification. Um, the, the Catholic version of, uh, of sanctification is sort of mixed with justification. This comes from the, the, their catechism, uh, catechism. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. So we see this mixture between sanctification and justification. The Catholic faith continues to receive new infusions of grace for the increase of sanctification, which is found in the participation in the sacraments. So they have a little bit different idea, concept, than what the Protestant view on sanctification would be. This is an ongoing justification, and it is incomplete on earth. And it can be perfected here on earth, but very unlikely. More than likely, your perfection happens in purgatory, where your final you know, justification takes place, where you are purified. Also underneath this system, uh, one can easily lose their salvation and gain it back as well. There are also various views in the Protestant tradition when it comes to sanctification. I'm just going to list a couple, but there's a lot more out there as well. The Wesleyan view believes that in a Christian perfectionism. Now, anybody out there, do I see any raises of hands of, of sinless perfectionism? Are you perfect? Can you be perfect here on earth? I don't see many hands out there. All right, underneath this system here, at some point during your Christian walk, a second work of grace enables you, the believer, to perfectly love God and perfectly love your neighbor. We don't know when that, that takes place, but it's sometime in your walk in faith there. The Pentecostal charismatic believe in a second blessing. This is the tradition I grew up with, in which the believer receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with the sign and evidence of speaking in tongues. This is sort of your next step of sanctification and, and growing in holiness is once you receive this second blessing of speaking in tongues being evident of that. This system here sort of puts it at a two-tiered level of Christians. You know, those who, who 
have the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and those who have not yet received that. So finally, our view here at this church, as well as mine, we know something is called progressive sanctification. There's a clear distinction between justification and sanctification, unlike the Catholic schema there. We are justified or declared righteous at the moment of salvation. We're in right standing with God at that point. Justification is an act of God whereby he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Christ. After a person is right standing with the holy living God, then the process of sanctification immediately begins. So unlike these other Protestant traditions, there's some point afterwards. We don't know exactly when. Progressive sanctification says immediately. It's also no progressive sanctification. Also, you'll hear experiential sanctification. As called, is effective obedience to the word of God in one's life. It is the same as growing in the Lord or spiritual maturity. I think this is an area we can all grow in, and we sometimes often find difficult in our own lives. How do we become more like Christ? The Bible also presents three tensions uh, or tenses of sanctification there. I am sanctified, I am being sanctified, and I will be sanctified. This progression of being conformed to Christ goes on throughout our Christian walk. We are never perfected here on earth, only till the day that we die where we receive glorification, where we enter into the glory with our Savior in heaven. Once the one who dies in Christ, they enter into a state, like I said, glorification is God's final removal of sin from the life of the saints so that they stand faultless before him in glory. Progressive sanctification does not make two different categories of Christians, such as a carnal Christian or one awaiting Christian perfectionism or a second blessing. And unlike the Catholic view, it makes a clear distinction, though, between justification and sanctification. It's not dependent upon the believer to remain in a state of grace. Sanctification is an ongoing work in our lives by the Spirit working in us. And we'll get into that a little bit more. You know How does sanctification actually play out in our own lives? You know, is this something I do? I think many of us may fall into that category right there, and there's some errors to that we need to recognize. Now that we've addressed the various terms and positions, and we understand that God demands us to be holy, we see this time and time again in Scripture. This is his standard. However, as Christians, we also recognize that we still wrestle with our own sinful nature. Anybody have that problem? Yeah, I think we all do, right? We're still wrestling with our own sinful nature. I see hands over here even amongst our young ones. So how does one fight the ever-present sinful human nature? I have three points for us today. A good Baptist that I am, right? Three points. First... We must recognize a serious condition that we are in. This isn't a game that we're playing. This is something we can't sleepwalk through. I give an illustration here. Uh, I went to Panama City, Panama. I was walking in the streets there. And 
was trying to make it to the Panama Canal by foot. If anybody knows me and they travel with me, one of the irritants they find out quickly with me is I go everywhere by foot. I don't want to pay a cab. I don't want to pay a train. I just want to see the scenery and walk there and enjoy it. So trying to get to the Panama Canal, which is actually a considerable distance out of town. I ultimately had to get a cab, but that's neither here nor there. So I'm here in this foreign country, I believe maybe the second time I was overseas or outside the U.S., a young teenager, and I'm wandering the streets, not knowing where I'm going, but I'm enjoying the scenery, enjoying the town, went to the market, making my way, progressing. I know, you know, a general direction, I see signs, I'm getting there. And at a certain point, I find myself a little disoriented. And I'm somewhere, you know, not on course anymore. And things start to look a little sketchy. And I don't know how to make my way back. I'm a little, well, I don't know if I can admit this before my kids and my wife, but I'm a little lost. I'm a little worried as well. Because I can't really speak a whole lot of Spanish. Things are looking well. Uh, you know, I, I, here's an old country boy in a big city in a foreign land. A uh, car comes speeding by, stops immediately next to me. They're on the sidewalk. He can't speak a lick of English. I can't speak a lick, lick of Spanish or not much. And he looks at me and he goes, white boy. Well, I understood enough that I was probably in the wrong part of town. I didn't understand the perils I was in. I was just naive and oblivious to the reality of the situation. I was somewhere I ought not to be. Likewise, many are stumbling through the life's streets in the same way, not recognizing the perils your very souls are in. Think about Vanity Fair. They were just walking through there. They recognized the dangers and they did something about it. But many, too often in the Christian walk, we are just sleepwalking through life. Our hearts are naturally, one of the serious conditions that we are in is that our hearts are in hatred towards the call to holiness. That sinful inner man, the flesh, as we see in the Bible, hates holiness. It wants to do what it wants to do, and it wants it now. We are lovers of darkness rather than light, John 3.19. This is a serious accusation, you might say. There's some good people out there, is there not, Will? Christ said that there is only one who is truly good. The reason that our hearts are so inclined to sin is a result of the fall in the garden. And we will just briefly touch this. In the fall, we not only lost favor with God, but also the purity of our goodness in our human nature. Adam and Eve were in this, this, this good state, this perfect state, until they fell and chose to rebel against God. And this was inherited with something we call original sin to us all. 
Adam was our representative of all mankind there in the garden. Some might say, this is unfair as well, Will. You know, I wasn't there. I didn't do that. I didn't rebel against God. Well, you're talking, one, to the wrong person. I'm a military guy first and foremost, and I've received plenty of punishment for someone else's misdoing. You know, and we think that this doesn't work as well as far as total freedom and human liberty goes. We are a nation. And people at the very top, presidents on down, they make decisions. We might not even agree with some of those decisions. However, they have ramifications to us here even today of those decisions that they make. I think we all understand this concept of other people's actions, decisions, and indecisions affect more than themselves. Likewise, in the family unit, when mother and father make a decision And let's say the kid's like, I didn't make that decision. Well, it still is going to affect those children, the decisions that their parents make. So similarly, we might make that charge against God. This is unfair that we are tainted with sin from our original parents. But we see through scripture, places like Romans 5, with Adam as our federal head, our representative there in the garden. And this sin that it taints all of humanity continues to this very day. We are in need, because of this, of being reconciled to God due to our first parents. Romans 7.15 says this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Here's the Apostle Paul speaking to us today. Now, some may say, hey, this is prior to conversion. I do not take that view. I believe he's clearly stating this post-conversion here, that Paul is wrestling with his own flesh. Here we have the mighty Paul, you know, wrote much of the New Testament for us. And however, what is happening He doesn't understand his own actions, and he doesn't do what he, uh, and I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Paul recognizes that left unfettered, the passions of the flesh will destroy us, and we must be serious about defeating it. So point number one, we must recognize the serious condition that we are in. Point number two. Maybe my longest point here, we are in a war, and we must be killing sin, or as the great John Owen says, sin be killing you. Talking about John Owen, here's the actual quote here, a little bit longer excerpt from the book Mortification of Sin. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use mortification, you know, in my daily usage. And the way I understand as a modern American, mortify is maybe something a little bit different than what John Owen is talking about here. Mortification, we often think of, you know, maybe a great embarrassment. 
you know, I'm mortified, right? However, here, if we look at the root word here in Latin, uh, to mortify it means to make dead. So when we are killing sin, this is quite literally killing sin here that, that John is talking about. We also see this in our, our scripture. If we open up to God's word today, Romans 8. Spencer read from us here. We're going to look at these two verses, verses 12 and 13. Romans 8, 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, there's the key word, the deeds of the body, you will live. Put to death. Uh, Put to death, that's ESV, I believe, the, the New King James, the NAS, and the LSB put putting to death. The KJV actually still retains the word mortify here, using the older English language to put to death. The War Against the Flesh. Another good book as I was studying for this, uh, as reading through, was uh, J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. Excellent, excellent book. You need to read that at least once in your lifetime. I would highly encourage it. In this timeless book, Ryle worries that the Christian has the utter absence of this internal conflict, this wrestling with our flesh. The recognition of this conflict is a good sign of sanctification taking place in our life. So how do we know that we're being sanctified? Well, one of the ways we know is that we we dislike what we're doing. There's the spirit raging war inside of us against our flesh. That's one of the signs. Here's what he states. Child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. This seems like a contradiction. How can we have peace and warfare at the same time? He continues to argue on true Christianity is a fight of our faith. So, how does a spirit have peace? And yet, wage war at the same time. Let's continue to talk about that and hopefully answer your question. This is a daily war we wage and one that has serious consequences. Verses 12 here in Romans, we see that as believers, uh, as believers, they are not to live according to the flesh. These are earthly desires. These are things against God's holy law that we see. Because of Christ's resurrection, we are not to be hopeless in a hopeless predicament, doomed to be indebted to the evil desires of the flesh. All too often, I've seen time and time again with, with people, is that they recognize they have a, a sinful nature or an ungodly habit. They're committing a holy offense against God. And at some point, they're wrestling around with it, and then they just throw up their hands. Well, I'm probably never going to get rid of that. That's giving in to the enemy there. Verse 13 says, we will die if we live according to the flesh. We have to recognize that this war going on is to the death. This isn't some sort of peace treaty negotiation we can have. This isn't a redrawing of the lines. You know, hey, 
you know, if I stay on this side of the turf, you know, and the enemy over there, we're good to go, right? This is a fight to the death. It is the spirit who puts to death, we see there in verse 13. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is assurance that with mortification or the killing of sin here, that the spirit empowers us to overcome the flesh. So what are some of the characteristics of a warrior and his weapons of warfare? Uh, We start with the simple answer, right? The Sunday school answer. The word of God obviously is our first step here. It is the primary weapon of a Christian soldier. We're talking war or using military type of terms. It's understandable. This is a violent action that is taking place. The Christian is what he is, does what he does, thinks as he thinks, acts as he acts, hopes as he hopes, behaves as he behaves for one simple reason. He believes certain propositions revealed and laid down by Holy Scripture that came from morale. We must be resolved to destroying the indwelling sin by all means. We must be vigilant as well. We cannot tolerate the enemy. We must subdue and kill it. We must understand our enemy. He comes to kill, still destroy. Our flesh is prone to the enticements of the enemy. We must understand its ways, its methods, its advantages, and occasions. We must also be patient and recognize that there are times that there will be setbacks. Much like a war, war isn't won on a single battle. There may be many battles, and there may be, you know, sometimes failures, but that does not mean a retreat. We must continue to wage this war and seek victory against it. Even when we think that a lust is dead because it is quiet, we must labor to give it new wounds and new blows every day. So this is something that, uh, hey, I thought I took care of that many years ago. It is interesting when we start to, you know, be less resolute on some of these things in our own lives that they have a, a surprising way of popping their heads back up again. Like, where did that come from? You know, maybe you had an issue with anger. Or, or whatever it is, you know, and it rears its ugly head again. You're like, I thought we dealt with that. This is a daily thing that we're raging war against. We must commit to achieving our objective, which is victory. We are not satisfied until there is victory. And we also have promises from the word of God from Christ here in Philippians 1.6. He who began, began a good work in you will begin bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we can rest assured knowing that the victory has been won already. Now, one of the mistakes that I mentioned before that many of us are prone to when it comes to waging war against our own flesh, our sinful desires, is we try to do it in our own power. Like, I've heard this often, you know, I can do better. You know, I got to do this, you know, more often, whatever it is. Less TV, less time on the phone, 
You know, I just need to be a better person, a nicer person, and stop getting angry. That leads me to my third point here today. We must be enabled by the Holy Spirit to be able to wage this warfare. Many in this battle are fighting without the right tools for warfare. Unlike justification, which is solely an act of God, sanctification is a participatory in which the Spirit enables us to wage war against the flesh. It is interesting. I believe I've heard, you know, um, for all the good things uh, that are done, all the good deeds, all the good works, um, all this progression towards being Christ-like, you know, we give glory to God for all the bad things, you know, I'm, I'm sort of responsible for. That's a sort of interesting way of thinking of it. First Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. God's standard for all of mankind is to be holy as he is holy. You see that in 1 Peter and other places as well. This is an impossible for us to achieve by ourselves. Impossible. It isn't, hey, you know, I got a, a really tough road to hoe or, or whatever. This is an impossible thing to be like God, to be holy like he is. However, notice in Thessalonians here that it is God who is effectually applying this to the believer's life. It is God who is doing the work inside of us. But it is also us being willing and receptive to being called to be holy. Sanctification is not merely a spiritual thing either. It affects our spirit, our soul, and our body. Notice also there is a promise that he is faithful to do such things inside of us. We also need to understand that we are part of a much larger story than ourselves when it comes to the area of sanctification. Jesus prayed this for his disciples in John 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. There's a great danger when we give in to our desires of our flesh. Uh, we live in opposition to this, this grand narrative in Scripture and God's unfolding of his redemption plan here on earth. So, in closing, a few points of application as we think through these things. Are you in the word and in prayer? If we are to note that the word of God is our first and most powerful weapon, are you in it? Are you diligently seeking after him and the truths that you find there? Are you seeking him out through prayer? I know this is true for my own life, but I, I see this evident in many churches now and days as well, is... Uh, the prayer life seems to not be as emphasized as it has in times past. I would even argue to say that there would be never a great revival in the land 
unless people are on their knees and in the word of God. This also applies for us in our walk in sanctification to becoming Christ-like. We need to be in the word and in prayer. This might be getting up a little bit earlier in the morning, having a consistent time in the word there. Creating godly habits are not easy. Uh, It's interesting that, you know, um, ungodly or unproductive habits are, you can just sort of walk into them. They just sort of happen. Like uh, often you'll see, hey, man, I just uh, spent 30 minutes on my phone or an hour, you know, I didn't even think about it. And here you are, you're in this routine, this habit at that point in your life. It's very easy for us to walk into bad habits. It takes intentionality for us to create good habits in our lives. So be intentional about these things. Are you trying to wage a war by yourself? Here's another thing. Or are there others who are keeping you accountable to this? We are a community. We are a body of Christ. There is no lone rangers in the body of Christ. If you need help with something, reach out. Ask for help. That's very tough, especially for me as a man, to admit is when I need help. Or I need someone to, you know, hey, keep me accountable on this issue here. Uh I remember the first year that I was here, and I went on reserve duty out in D.C., I believe I was, and um, I sent Kevin an email at like 3 a.m. in the morning. I was up. I don't sleep well when I'm on the road. It's just who I am. You know, I like my own bed, my own creature comforts. And uh, I immediately got a response back from Kevin at 3 a.m. in the morning. He's like, what are you doing online at this time at night? <laughs> he had eyes on me. He was making sure I wasn't into something I should not be when I was alone there. I really appreciated that from him, that he was like on that even at 3 a.m. in the morning. So are other people, other men, other women, holding you accountable to live this godly life? A few points in Scripture here to take to heart. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Keeping each other in check here. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Another thing as far as application, are you enabled by the Holy Spirit to overcome? Are you reliant? Are you dependent upon him for this transformation? We must humbly submit ourselves and our lives to him. We must have an internal renewal uh, renewing of our mind, our body, our spirit. This is a daily thing, as we think, like even Romans 12 there. Unfortunately, for an unbeliever, I don't have a whole lot of help, hope for you. You may be able to mask the problem, you might be able to do external things that seem to subdue these things. 
but you will never truly have victory outside of Christ. So my cry to you this morning is submit your life to Christ because it is only him who can truly enable us to be more than conquerors, to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil is only through him. Also, as we think as trying to have an external holiness, I think even here in our Christian walk, we often want to show a good face. We come in these doors. You know, we want our kids to behave. You know, we don't want them, you know, yelling and screaming. You know, that's a bad reflection on us. You know, we want people to see us, you know, we got it all together. This is very similar to the Pharisees that we see in Matthew, which Christ says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So even if we have the outside appearance, there can still be that internal dirtiness, that rot, that filth, that will ultimately lead to our room. So I just encourage you, brothers and sisters, today, consider what it means to be a Christian, this walk that we live day by day, and put to death the flesh. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Well, dear Lord, we thank you for your word.